Wow, we get to start a brand new series today. I am so pumped. It's called I Dare You, uh, Lessons in Biblical Courage. You, it's named after uh, that scene in, what's it called, A Christmas Story, where uh, it, that movie, like, I think takes place in, like, the 60s, maybe, and the kids go to school, and they, it's, like, somewhere in the Midwest, like Chicago or Indiana, one of those places, um, and, and they have a flagpole in the playgrounds, and the flagpole is made out of, like, iron, or something like that, some kind of metal, I don't know. And it's very cold in places that are not Southern California. And it's wintertime, and it's Christmas time, and there, there's this one kid, I think his name's Flick. Um, and he's like, the other kids are like, dude, you, sh- you need to lick this flagpole in this sub-zero weather. And he's like, no, I'm not going to do that. That seems crazy. Like, what, what, what might happen? And they're like, well, I dare you. He's like, no, 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 no. And they're like, I double dog dare you. And then he's like, oh my gosh, the double dog dare. They whipped it out. It's serious. And so he licks the flagpole and his tongue freezes the flagpole. And he begins screaming. And it's a really sad scene. Um, and apparently that can happen. Like you can, yeah, if it's really cold, you can lick stuff and your tongue gets stuck to it. And I think they have to put like hot water on it. I don't know. It looked real bad. Anyway, the point is, is that uh, we're looking at a series that's about courage. Okay. Uh, nobody dares anybody to do anything unless it's something that's scary. Um, and so when I say I dare you, I'm also daring myself. Uh, it's going to be I dare me and I dare you because we're going to be looking at texts through across the scriptures where people are doing things and living in ways that are um, just deeply difficult for us as human beings. And so let's um, th- th- we're going to start with uh, with Ehud. Uh, if you're not familiar with this text, it's from Judges 3, and it is maybe one of my favorite texts in the whole Bible, and hopefully you'll see why as we read through it. So a lot of text here, so let's uh, jump in. The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, of Yahweh, and Yahweh strengthened, he empowered King Eglon of Moab against Israel because they'd done what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. And so in alliance with the Ammonites and the Amalekites, King Eglon went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. So the Israelites served, they were basically in servitude or slaves to King Eglon of Moab for 18 years. But when the Israelites cried out to Yahweh, Yahweh raised up for them a deliverer, a a savior. It's the the word for savior, rescuer, deliverer. Ehud, son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. Uh, Ehud, probably in Hebrew it's actually pronounced like Ehud. But no one talks like that. Ehud sounds better in English. Uh, but any lefties here? This is our, I'm, I'm left-handed. This is our story. This is the moment in Scripture where we get our, our time. The Israelites sent tribute by him. By, uh, they sent Ehud with a tribute to King Eglon of Moab. Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length. Uh, the normal word for cubit uh, is not the word used here. A cubit is the elbow to the tip of the middle finger. Uh, the word here, go them, is, uh, it's, it, it means like a shortened, and it's probably uh, elbow to the knuckle. Um, it's a shortened cubit because, as we see here, he's uh, going to fasten it on his right thigh under his clothes. He needs a, uh, a shorter blade so that it doesn't like stick out when he's walking. He doesn't want anyone to know that he's armed. So he presents the tribute to King Eglon of Moab. Eglon was a very fat man. When Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent the people carrying the tribute on their way. So he's by himself now in front of King, of Fat King Eglon of Moab. 
And he himself turns back at the sculptured stones near Gilgal, kind of at the gate to uh, King Eglon's lair, and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. So the king yells, silence! And all his attendants went out from his presence. Ehud came to him while he was alone, sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. Uh, the cool roof chamber, that means bathroom. Uh, in the ancient world, the ancient world was very gross. And uh, the king Elon's a wealthy man, so he's got a very tall um, you know, structure. And at the top of it is where the breeze comes. And if you know anything about ancient plumbing, they didn't have it. They, um, they did their business in, in pots, right? And those pots got very smelly. And so you want to be in a place where the wind blows the smell away. So he's uh, sitting, and he's probably sitting on the toilet. Uh, so, I have a message from God for you. So he rose from his seat. Then Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into Eglon's belly. The hilt went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the sword out of the belly, and the dirt came out. I'll uh, explain that in a a little bit later, but you can imagine it's going to be gross. Then Ehud went out into the vestibule and closed the doors of the roof chamber on him, locked them, and then he makes his escape. After he'd gone, the servants came. When they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, he must be relieving himself in the cool chamber. So they waited. Apparently King Eglon would, you know, he got his cell phone out and he really spent time while he was doing his thing. Uh, they wait until they're embarrassed. When he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key, they opened him, and there they find their lord lying dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they were delayed and passed beyond the sculptured stones and escaped to Sarah. Uh, this is supposed to be a funny story. Um, not a lot of laughter here because we're not super into like stories of you know violence and assassination. Uh, but the ancient Israelites, they had a much less uh, upset take on violence. And this is a story about them being liberated, right? They, uh, they're, they're under oppression from this king, and, and this is the story of how they got free. Well, the first thing to notice is we're in the book of Judges, and the book of Judges is a, a series of cycles. Um, and it goes like this. Uh, the Israelites, have, they've moved into the land that God promised them, and they hang out, and things are going great, and they get really wealthy, and they get, they get complacent, and they start to do things that God doesn't like. They start to sin. They start to worship other gods. And so God looks at this, and he's like, I am not going to accept that. So he gives power to King Eglon to, to overtake them. And so then the Israelites are, they're, in, on, they're what are they doing? I mean, what's, what, is, what does Ehud do? He brings tribute, taxes. They're being taxed. No one likes taxes. April 15th, next week. Get ready. No one likes to be taxed. And so the Israelites, they're being taxed, and they're like, we hate this. If we're going to give money to anyone, we'd prefer to give it to God. Um, and so they cry out. They're like, God, help us. And God raises for them a savior. Um, if you follow the book of Judges, you're going to see this happens over and over and over again. In fact, even here in Judges 3, it begins, the Israelites again did what is evil in the sight of Yahweh. My, uh, my favorite shot from uh, A New Hope. This is, the, uh, this is like the iconic uh, scene where at the beginning of uh, A New Hope, 1977, the first Star Wars movie, uh, Luke Skywalker, he's uh, on the desert of Tatooine, and he knows that there are greater things out there for him. And so he goes to the—it's it's during um, 
at the time when the sun goes down, but uh, obviously in Tatooine, alien world, there's two suns. And it's a beautiful scene because there's something really familiar about it, right? Like there's deserts, which we're used to. And there's also something extremely alien about it, where there's like an igloo in a desert, and there's also two suns. Uh, this scene is meant to, to clue us into something that becomes a major trope in American cinema. Uh, by trope, I mean something that happens over and over again. It's not, this is not the first movie to do it, but this is the movie that really made it like so that everyone copies it, to the point that every superhero movie you see today does exactly the same thing. And what is that? It, you come into the story when some evil empire or whatever has taken over, and they're oppressing people and making the world an awful place. So, for example, if you watch an Avengers film, like just randomly, like Thanos or somebody is going to come out, and, and this evil outside oppressor is going to come in and make you know danger for Earth, for, for Americans or whatever. In the case of Luke Skywalker, it's the galactic evil empire with Darth Vader and Emperor Palpatine. Who knows how they got there? Who knows? We come into the story and there's this, and the poor people of the galaxy are fighting and they're resisting. We as Americans like this. Because the last thing we want to think is that any of our problems are our fault. We want to believe that the story is starting, and just these outside awful evil things have come, and they're, and they're stopping us, and they're oppressing us. And if only a hero would come and liberate us, we don't want to think what the Bible thinks. And that is, to some greater or lesser extent, the evil that we suffer, the suffering that we have, has its origins in us. And sometimes, you know, when we go on paths of sin, right, sometimes when we go on paths of sin, uh, God just says, okay, if that's what you want to do, see how that works out for you. And so if you go into, say, workaholism, right, um, God doesn't really have to do a whole lot to make you suffer. And the crazy thing about sin is that when you start it, right, it's awesome. You know, if you're, if you're going to workaholism or addiction or whatever, at the beginning, it's great. Workaholics make a lot of money. Money gets you stuff. Drugs make you feel good. But then what happens is over time, other results start to filter in. And we begin to suffer. Sometimes those results, God comes from the outside and says, stop it. As of what happened to the Israelites here. Sometimes it's just the natural result of doing something, of putting something in front of God. And when that happens, universally as human beings, we do what the Israelites do. We say, oh God, please save me. When the, the, the punishment, when the suffering becomes too great, our response is to cry out. To shout to God and say, God, save me. Sometimes God gives us uh, the ability to change our ways. Sometimes God brings in someone from our community or, or a spouse or a loved one. Sometimes God brings someone in from the church. But God finds a way, brings somebody in to save us. And that's the cycle of the judges, the cycle that we find ourselves in today. And the cycle is this. Sin leads to suffering, leads to shouting, leads to Savior. Sin leads to suffering, leads to shouting, leads to Savior. And who is the Savior of our story Ehud. 
This is interesting. Uh, just go back to the text there. Uh, I love this description of Ehud. Um, it says, uh, Ehud, son of Gerah. Gerah is a, a figure that comes earlier in the Old Testament so that we know what um, home he's a part of. Uh, oh, I, yeah, just skip that, that other one. Just go to the next uh, text. Ehud, son of Gerah, uh, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. Now, uh, there is a word in Hebrew for left-handed. Um, it gets used everywhere in the entire Hebrew scriptures, except for two places, and one of those places is here. Uh, the word in Hebrew is not left-handed. It's actually iter yad yamini. Now, that doesn't sound like anything to any of us because we don't speak Hebrew. But what it means is yamini is, uh, yad yamini is the right hand. And iter means uh, impotent or um, restricted. Uh, so the modern translations say left-handed, but what's literally there is uh, restricted or impotent right hand. But another interesting thing, Benjamite, Ben-Yamini, in, in Hebrew, ben, ben means son of, like Ben-Hur, son of her. And Yamini, did you hear it? Yamini means right, right hand. So the Hebrew, it's uh, uh, Ben-Yamini, uh, Iter Yad Yamini. Yamini, Yamini, Yamini. Benjamin literally means son of the right hand. Uh, no Ben's here today. Ben Malapard, if you're watching online, uh, your, main, your name means son of the right hand. So here's the son of the right hand, Ehud, whose right hand is impotent. Ehud's disabled. His, uh, his right arm is probably paralyzed, perhaps some way useless. Uh, we know this uh, left hand, uh, no one's left-handed in the ancient world. Did you know that King, Queen Elizabeth in the 1600s was born left-handed? So what did they do? They tied her left hand behind her back until she became right-handed. In ancient cultures, uh, especially those with some um, Semitic or Western influence, uh, the, the right hand is seen as a sign of, of righteousness, goodness, power, um, the left hand is seen as a sign of deviance or weakness. And so in uh, ancient cultures and really even up to 100, 200 years ago, uh, people who were naturally left-handed were turned into righties. And the reason this doesn't happen to Ehud is because his right hand doesn't work. So what are the Israelites doing? They're sending a, a paralyzed man, a, a disabled man, uh, to bring the tribute. Why? Because they want to signal to King Eglon, we're scared of you. We're afraid of you. We want to just serve you. We don't, don't think that we're a threat. We're going to be fine. And just look at this guy. This is the best we've got. Before, we, uh, before he, he died, uh, Kobe Bryant, um, tw- you know, two decades in the NBA, um, totally, you know, one of the icons of Southern California, and um, I remember maybe around like 2008 or 2010, I was watching a, an interview with him. And they were talking about, like, why do you spend so much time working on your game, your craft? And one of the things that Kobe said is he said, part of practice for me is to um, hide the things that I can't do on the floor. And he, and he tells the story of how when he was growing up, he idolized Michael Jordan, right, obviously. And, and if you look at Kobe's game, it's very Jordan-influenced. A lot of you know, mid-range uh, two shots, a lot of step-back jumpers, a lot of uh, dashing to, to the rim. 
Uh, when he was growing up, though, he noticed something that Jordan did that he would never be able to do. Jordan was famous for being able to palm the ball and wave it around because he had really large hands. Um, most NBA players can palm the ball, but very few have hands large enough to, to move the ball quickly and to keep control of it. And Kobe didn't have hands big enough to do that. And so he was studying Jordan over, and he realized, I'm never going to be able to do what Jordan did. And so what I have to do when I'm working out, when I'm training, when I'm developing my skills, is I have to find a way to compensate for that so that I can highlight what I'm great at and hide what I can't do. If you're interested for somebody who studied Jordan and actually does this uh, today, Kawhi Leonard... His hands are large enough, and he does a lot of ball palming, and he fakes people out with it. And if you think about it, what Kobe, what Kobe demonstrates, or what, that, what he's talking about, is exactly what we as human beings, uh, especially as Westerners, especially as Americans, this is our modus operandi. This is what we do, right? We say, hey, if I'm going to succeed, if I'm going to be great, um, i got to find out what my, my strengths are i got to find out what my talents are, my abilities, and I have got to lean right into those so that I can, can hide or keep people from seeing what I'm not able to do. What's crazy about our culture is it's even gone so far, because now in our culture, you can actually make a strength you know, out of being a victim, right? Um, and so in our culture... Uh, people say, uh, who, for example, uh, as many of you know, I've dealt with a lot of mental health issues over uh, my life. Um, but people with mental health issues, anxiety disorders, they'll just say, I can't do anything because I have too much anxiety. I, I'm too depressed or, you know, whatever your, your disability is. And so I, I, I'm just going to just sit here and not achieve anything, not do anything until you change the world to make it work for me. And I actually toyed with that in my 20s. Saying, I, I, I can't be expected to, to do anything because, um, because I have this, this problem. Which, of course, is the same thing as leaning into your strengths, right? Because if victimhood is a strength, then go all in on it and you can get stuff. And so there's either way you go. Like, the traditional way of succeeding in the United States of America is like, find out what you're good at, go after it, you know, crush it. And then the flip side, the new converse of that is, is, oh, find out how weak and disabled you are and lean into that and say that you can't achieve anything until uh, people, um, you know, do stuff for you. Either way, we live in a world and in a society where we believe deeply that what's good about us, that's what's worth, worthwhile about us, is the places that we naturally excel. And we believe deeply that what's really bad about us and what we need to hide and keep away are the places where we're disabled. That's the next thing in your note sheets. When God raises up the Savior, Ehud, what he's looking for is not Ehud's abilities. He's looking for Ehud in his weakness, in his disability. And that is what God is going to use to save. Mary, let's skip the next slide, go back to the text again. So Ehud with his uh, paralyzed hand. So probably what happens is um, 
He calls out to the king. He's like, I've got a message for you. Under normal circumstances, uh, King Eglon would have him escorted up and would not do, not parlay one-on-one. But King Eglon has nothing to worry about because this guy's disabled. And so when he walks in, instead of being frisked like everyone else would have been, they just let him go because he's, again, disabled. He's not the kind of person who can be a threat to the king. And so he, he goes up. The king's sitting alone in his cool roof chamber, again, likely um, on, on the restroom. And uh, as, he, as he does, he says, I have, uh, uh, Ehud says, I have a message from God for you. Now, again, notice this is uh, the general term for God, Elohim, not the Israelite name for God, Yahweh. Uh, so really what he's saying is he's like, I- I've got a message that your God told me that I, that I think you're going to be excited about. And so uh, Eglon uh, maybe, maybe just hasn't completed his business yet, stands up, pulls his stuff up, rises from his seat, and now he's face-to-face with, uh, with Ehud. So Ehud then reveals his weapon. He goes, like that, thrusts it into Eglon's belly. The last time this uh, text was preached in this church was about 15 years ago. And it was preached by Major Tom Wellborn, who at the time was a uh, major in the United States Marine Corps stationed in Camp Pendleton. He and his family were about to leave, and he requested that he be able to uh, preach on this. And I remember at the time, there was still like a pulpit here. And so he was up there, and he was describing the story. And uh, when he got to this part, he reaches into the pulpit, and he pulls out a K-bar, which is a really long and deadly marine knife. And he whisks it out, and he starts waving it around. And this thing is like, you know, yay long. And it's got a, it's a kind of a scimitar type like curve to it. And then on the other side, it's serrated. So it's like, but it's like, it's super sharp. Like all the light from the sun like collapsed. It was like, it was bright and shining. And I was like, man, this is the best sermon I've ever seen or heard in my life. Where is he going with this? This is awesome. <laughs> and he, so then what he does, he tries to explain. He's like, what's going on here? Well, his theory was that uh, when, when, Eg, uh, when Ehud makes the knife, he, he serrates one of the sides. It says it's a two-edged blade. His theory was that he serrated it because when you plunge a... I don't know how he knew this. I hope it's not from personal experience, but this is what he said. I'm just, just telling you what the Marines said. When you plunge a, uh, a blade into somebody, it actually usually comes out relatively easily, okay? Um, but in this case, it doesn't seem like it does, right? It, seems, it says that the, the fat closes over it. And what, what Tom said is he said that um, when you have a serrated edge, it like gets caught on stuff. So you have a hard time tugging it back out. So his theory was that he had makes the serrated goes and maybe even turns it a little bit, and then he starts to try and get it out, and he can't, right? Now, if he weren't paralyzed, what he would have done is what you and I would have do, where you take your other hand, and then you rip it out, right? But because he can't use his arm, he has to leave the blade there. Now, I don't know if that's true. Uh, what I do know is... That what happened next um, is definitely gross. Uh, where it says the dirt came out, that's, uh, that, that word right there, parashadana, uh, uh, we don't know what that means. It's, it's used nowhere else in the Hebrew Bible. Um, but it is related, parash, is related to the word paresh, which is the Hebrew word for feces. And so most people think that what happens is um, 
Ehud shoves the knife in as deep as he can go so that he gets past the fat, because Eglon's a fat guy, to the, the, gem, the, the important stuff. And doing so causes uh, Ehud to, or Eglon, Eglon to um, release whatever was in his intestines. That's supposed to be funny. Ha 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 ha. Look at that. Look at what happens. I'm telling you, this is supposed to be, this is like, this is Hebrew humor. So if you don't find this funny, you wouldn't have done well amongst the Hebrew people, the ancient Hebrew people. But that's what happened. Why is that important? It's important because uh, we look at this and we're like, wow, this is so violent. I mean, is this how God operates? I mean, here we've got a guy who, by the way, the rest of the Hebrews don't know he's doing this. The Israelites, they have no idea. This is all his idea. He comes in as an assassin. He's like, I'm going to take this guy out, free my people. Um, and and he, he pulls it off. Is this the kind of deliverer that God likes to raise? Well, I think if we look at it from a slightly different perspective, if we, you know, we sort of let the Israelite society kind of be what it was. Obviously, we're not here to raise up assassins in this church. Sam? That is not a legitimate, like, way to go in terms of your career. Okay? If you find yourself in assassin school, you've made some wrong turns. He would love it. He'd be like, yeah, my son's killing all kinds of people. Don't listen to him. Listen to me. Uh, but if we, if we shift our perspective, we recognize in ancient Israel, I mean, this is a terrible place. It was, violence was normal, and these people were oppressed, and they had to have something happen, right? If we accept that, and we kind of say, if we step back away from the, the violence and the grossness and the, the restrooms and all the intestines and all that stuff, and we kind of look at what's actually going on from, the, from a bird's eye view, Okay, what's happening is God is sending somebody in weakness to demonstrate his own power. Now, we're not used to thinking about that as like the way to do things, right? We, we want someone to come in power. Like, for example, when we think about Jesus, Jesus was awesome. One of the reasons he was awesome is he came in power, right? He comes in. He's, I got a picture here from El Greco. Um, where Jesus is healing uh, the man who was born blind. Okay, the man's, uh, you know, the, the Pharisees are like, why did, you know, who sinned? His, his parents or his grandparents to make this man blind? Jesus is like, the reason he was born blind is so that I could come in power and show you what things God has in store. And so Jesus heals this guy. Jesus does other amazing things. He feeds the 5,000. He uh, raises the dead a couple of times. I mean, Jesus comes in incredible power. And that's the way we think things should be done. Except that one time. Marilyn, can you uh, skip ahead to the Matthew 27 text? This is uh, where Jesus is being crucified. He's being tortured to death for blasphemy and sedition. And he's on the cross and he's suffocating. 
And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Jesus had made a, a, a prediction that he would destroy the temple and then raise it in three days. And no one understood what he meant. He was talking, of course, about his own resurrection. But they're, they're like, oh, you think you can do that? You can destroy the temple? Well, then save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Chief priests, the lawyers, the religious elites, they said he saved others, himself he cannot save. If he's the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe. He trusted in God, let God deliver him, let God save him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Jesus comes to earth in incredible power, does amazing things, signs and wonders. He, he, he heals the sick. He liberates the captives. He up, overturns um, the, the, the society in every way. And then when it comes to it, at the moment when real salvation, worldwide salvation needs to take place, when everyone's soul is on the line, what power does Jesus show? He doesn't show any power at all. If you think of his ability to, to heal, his ability to um, raise the dead, if you think of those things um, like his strong right arm, it's as if his strong right arm is impotent. And the son of the right hand His right hand is bound. But in that disability, in that weakness, God chooses to deliver to save the world. God chooses to treat that weakness as sacrifice. Uses that weak vessel, that tortured vessel, to bring justice and life into the world, to bring uh, the Spirit to our hearts, um, to forgive sins, to overlook, and to enable and to free us from sin and death. And so I dare you. I dare you to ask God to use you in your weakness instead of your strength. I dare you to stop being the son or the daughter of the right hand and instead become the son or the daughter of the impotent right hand. When I say I dare you, I dare me too. Because boy, you know what I like to lean into is the stuff I know I'm good at. And yet I wonder, I wonder if... if you know, the whole problem with Israel at the beginning of this is that, you know, they, they, they turn away from God. They sin. Why do they sin? Because they're complacent, right? Because they get rich. They're living in the land, the promised land. They have everything they need. And if they just work hard and they just do um, all the stuff that they're good at, they, they amass this, this fortune. And suddenly at a certain point, God stops being that important to them. And they begin going off and doing their own things or, you know, 
worshiping other gods or whatever or, or just, just doing bad stuff. And it, it, isn't it possible that it's, it's them living in their strength that causes them to get into this problem to begin with? And isn't it possible that for us, it's our always looking at what my gifts are instead of looking at the things that I try to hide from you. And yet, isn't it amazing that all of the incredibly powerful things God did uh, through Jesus' healings and miracles, ultimately when God wanted real salvation, eternal salvation, he turned to, to Jesus' weakness to make it happen. It's difficult to know what that looks like for every, every single person. I, I, I get that. Um, it, it's difficult to, to say, okay, all right, I, most of us are pretty familiar with what we're not good at um, because we've tried to use those parts of our lives and we've fallen flat on our face and we're like, that didn't work. Let's go with something that I'm actually you know, confident in. What's, so we're probably aware of our weaknesses, if we think about it. The things that we're, where we're disabled, we're not able to accomplish. We're probably aware of those things. What does it look like, though, to ask God for those things to be his strength? Well, I had a hard time thinking about this, and I think it's probably because I'm what little you know, success that I've had in my own life has really come from me leaning into my gifts, leaning into the things that I know that God has, has blessed in my life. Um, and it's hard uh, to remember and to think back to times where God said, you know what, you're bad at this, but I'm going to use you anyway. Most of you don't know this, uh, but back in, from like 2005 to 2008-ish, before uh, Doug came, um, someone with, you know, talent. Uh, I was the leader of the worship here. And it was awful. For those of you who remember, God bless you for not leaving. Because it was... <laughs> it was humiliating in one way. Because I get up there and I'm like, man, I'm doing a bad job. I hate this. I'm supposed to be worshiping, but what I'm really thinking about is how awful I am. You're welcome. <laughs> um, and yet every once in a while, someone would come up and be like, first it was, <laughs> it was like the backhanded compliment, like, you're, you're trying so hard. <laughs> like, we can tell. <laughs> like, oh, thanks. Um, but, but then it was also like, um, every once in a while, I was like, you know, I wasn't really in a place to do this or that, um, but, you know, just the way that you were doing whatever it was you did today really brought me um, into a place uh, where I could commune with God. Now, when that was said to me, I knew from the bottom of my heart that that was the Holy Spirit operating. People were like running out the door. But in God's strength and in my weakness, people were being brought in. 
from time to time. So here's one for you. Sweet Kate, there you are by yourself because Lucas is off in the barn on a Sunday morning trying to rally around your awful, awful, awful teenagers and preteens. Lucas is putting together a uh, curriculum for the barn on Sundays. Um, We really do want to get to a place where um, he actually gets to, you know, participate in the, the church service from time to time. And so um, we need people to pick up some of the slack, to teach, you know, 12 to 16-ish year olds. Now, that is the worst job in the church. And I guarantee you, there's not one person here, with the exception of my father, for whom teaching junior hires is a strength. Because they are inadequately formed humans. And they deserve nothing less than death. But, in God's providence, he has authored us, established us, to raise them. That's just one example of something that everyone here could start operating out of weakness rather than strength. To say nothing of children's ministry, that one's better because they're cuter. Um, but we've got some holes uh, there. Uh, and, and these are just some examples of things that, you know, it's like taking out the garbage. Someone's got to do it. And no one's like, man, well, I guess there probably are some people who are like, man, I am great at taking out the garbage. God bless you. That's fantastic. Most of us are not that. It, but whatever it is, where if you look and you say, you know what, here's a need. Here's some rescuing. Here's some delivering, some saving that needs to take place. I know God wants to do this, and I know that it, it's definitely outside of my wheelhouse. It's not in my lane. I dare you. I dare you to ask God to make your weakness his strength. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are privileged to be your children. And God, we confess that we get caught up in cycles of sin, of suffering, of shouting, and needing a Savior. And God, we also confess that we're people who like to lean on our power, who like to lean into our strengths to see our successes. And yet, God, we confess that in Ehud and again in your Son, Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, You made weakness and disability the place of strength and salvation. God, prick every heart here, Lord. We we ask you, God, give us the courage to, to ask you to use our weaknesses and not our strengths. To take us into places where we have to depend on you because we can't depend on our strong right arm anymore. Because it's impotent and withered. And instead, all we have is the left hand you've given us. And in all things, God, may you then reap the glory when you bless and save through us in our weakness that we see it again and again. It's your strength, the power of your spirit that is life and not our wisdom and our power. And we praise you, Jesus, for showing us the way, for showing us the ultimate act of weakness leading to salvation, assuring us that in our weakness, 
Father, Son, and Spirit, you create strength. Jesus, in your name we pray, amen.